Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Happy Sunday, happy Sunday. Welcome to the Vineyard. Welcome to the Vineyard. Hey, we're going to do another one-off sermon this morning. We're going to spend another week or two doing one-off sermons before I start a new series. going to let all the college kids get back before we do that. But I want to talk to you this morning. We're going right into it. I'm not even doing any of the really lame preacher setup stuff this morning. We're going right into it this morning. If you want to, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. This morning's message is called Hungry Heart. Hungry Heart. You know Bruce Springsteen has got it right. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Right? Everybody's got a hungry heart. In fact, we should have sang it this morning for worship. I tried to talk to Hannah into it. Actually, I didn't. Just telling lies. But I'm telling you, next Sunday we might do it. Even though it's a story about leaving your wife and then ultimately not being satisfied with the other woman, we still might sing it. Why? It's current. That's why. That's why. And you're going to see it even in this morning's text. If you want to read along with me, let's start. Chapter 25, this is verse 19. We're going to read two sections here because you kind of need the two to go together. It goes like this. It says, this is the account of the family of Isaac, son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. It's a theme. The Lord answered Isaac's prayers and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? Did she ask? And the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. Sounds cute. So they named him Fluffy. Actually, they named him Esau. That's what Esau means, rough or hairy. Then the other twin was born with his hand grabbing Esau's heel. Imagine that. So they named him Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So one day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom. It means red. All right, Jacob replied. But here's the deal. Trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? Translation, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore on an oath. Let me tell you how they swore. They sat next to each other, and each man had a hold of the other man in the most biblical sense, and that's how they swore. Anybody want to make contracts like that? No takers. It's weird. So Esau swore on an oath, thereby selling all of his birthrights as the firstborn son to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Great story, huh? Great story. It's amazing to me that this story lasts so long. Did you know that even unbelievers know the story of Jacob and Esau? These stories stick in us. And they stick in us because 
They are universal. They're universal stories. I believe that they are about particular people. I believe that they are about some people named Jacob and Esau, but they're really about us. And so we're going to get right in this morning. Let's talk about what we have going on here. And the first thing that we have going on is we have twin brothers, twin brothers. Jacob's name means heel grabber or deceiver, could be translated trickster. And Esau's name, we've already covered this, means hairy or rough. One was born with lots of red hair and the other because he came out grabbing his brother's heel. And there's something about their birth that was microscopic in terms of being a microscopic version of their whole lives. Esau was first and Esau was blessed, but Jacob was second and he was always reaching for what Esau had. There's a lot there. And in these little passages that we read this morning, we learn quite a bit about these two characters. But we'll start with Esau. We'll start with Esau. Well, Esau was first, and because he was first, he had the birthright. And here's what the birthright meant. It meant that he had family privilege as the oldest son. It meant that he had honor in the household. It meant that if anything happened to Isaac, that the family became Esau's. It meant that while Isaac was alive, there was a pecking order, and the pecking order went like this. Well, there's there's Isaac, and anything that Isaac says goes. And to the extent that Isaac isn't around, or to the extent that Isaac hasn't said, anything that Esau says goes. Everyone just had to fall in line. Without any question, everybody served Isaac, and to a lesser extent, but also to a great extent, they served Esau. He was honored in the family. Birthright also meant another thing. It meant that on the day that Isaac died, it meant that Esau gets a double portion of the estate. So Jacob will get something, but he'll get half as much as as Esau gets. Esau's going to get double. He's going to get double. So there's a financial aspect to it as well. The Bible also tells us something else about Esau. It tells us that Esau was a skillful hunter. And at this point, you need to read everything you might typically associate with a hunter and more into that description. It means that Esau was an outdoorsman. It means that he was strong and it means that he was athletic, especially because he was a hunter in the ancient Near East living a couple thousand years ago. It means that he probably hunted with a bow or sling and he was probably a borderline marathon runner. Here's what I mean. How many of you understand that if you don't have rifles and you don't have modern firearms and all you have is a longbow or a sling, that one of the ways that you have to be a couple things. Number one, you've got to be skillful at stalking. And the second thing, one of the things that we're learning from anthropologists right now is that the, the gift of being a homo sapien human being is, is not our strength. But it is our intelligence and it's our endurance. One of the things that anthropologists are telling us is that more than almost any other animal alive, we can endure by running. And so one of the ways that ancient humanity hunted was they would select the prey, they would run it to death, and basically they would run and run and run, sometimes up to uh, marathon, marathon distances so that they could use their bow or use their sling. Does this make sense? So one of the things that we know about Esau right now is he is strong, he is confident, he is an outdoorsman, he has weapons, he's probably a borderline marathon runner, and because he has all of those things, he is confident, he is self-assured, he is independent, and he is intimidating. You ever been around somebody with a gun? Especially the guys who feel like they need to wear it everywhere they go? It's like, what are we compensating for here anyway? Trying to intimidate people? That was Esau. That was Esau. He was resourceful. He was brave. He was not afraid of being out alone. He was good at building fires. He was looking for adventure. He was a kind of self-made man. But also, in a way, Esau was completely uninterested in most of what was happening at home. He was apparently uninterested in the family business, which was mostly herding. You never see Esau hanging out with the goats or the sheep. And he was not really a part of the family in that sense. So he was independent. He was an individual. He was the original Marlboro man. He was a man's man. And the other thing that we know from the text for sure about Esau, he was hungry. He was hungry. Of course, he comes home hungry. He wasn't successful hunting. That's the hinge of the story. That's the focus of the action. But I suspect, I suspect that Esau was hungry in a much more general sense 
And our clue is one of the first that was offered in the scripture when it says that he was a hunter. He was a hunter, which is to say Esau was looking for something. He was looking for something. And anybody who is a hunter and anybody who knows a hunter knows one thing. And this one thing is this, that all hunters are looking for more than animals. This fall, I went hunting in Montana. It was awesome. And I was hoping to shoot a mule deer. And a big one. Saw all kinds of animals when I was out there. I saw more deer than I've ever seen in my life. And I didn't shoot any of them because I didn't feel like any were worthy of my gun. I hiked hill and valley. I hiked mountain and stream. And I never saw a shooter. But I can tell you this. If I had... And I can say this with some confidence. If I had, and if I had shot that deer, I can tell you this, shooting the deer isn't even the point. Because every hunter is looking for more than an animal. It's the chase. It's the lack of guarantees. It's the idea that it's not a sure thing. And if you're somebody like me who sits in an office, does a lot of reading, and listens to people's problems, one of the things you want most in life is a chase, no guarantees, and a little bit of solitude. It's the feeling of smallness. It's the vulnerability. It's the exposure to the elements. It's the idea that if I make a bad decision, the weather could kill me. It's the idea that out in Montana... There's some manageable danger. It's the idea that while I'm hunting a mule deer, there might be a mountain lion hunting me. In fact, one morning, Ray Ray and I, we walk up a log road, and right in front of us in the snow were cat paw prints this big. That was my favorite moment of the hunt. It's the manageable danger. It's the feeling of being a little lower on the food chain. See, here's the thing. I don't know Esau. He and I never chatted. But I suspect that he was hunting for more than an antelope. One thing we know for sure is that he was hunting for his father's approval. The scripture says that Isaac loved Esau and it says that he loved him because he liked to eat the game that he brought home. That's verse 28. I suspect that he was out there looking for a sense of approval. You can hear it in the Genesis story when Jacob has tricked him again and he has taken his father's blessing from him, you know the story, he dresses up, puts goat skins on his arms and on his neck, and he tricks his father, who doesn't see so well, into giving him the father's blessing that should have been Esau's. Esau comes in a little bit too late, and you can hear it in his voice. He's actually probably crying. He's wailing. Don't you have another blessing for me? And Jacob has taken it, and Isaac says, no, I don't. That one's gone. And he does, in fact, bless him, but it is a lesser blessing. He's working for his father's approval. He's hunting not just for an antelope. He's hunting for his father's happiness, which, asks, which begs the next question. Where did Isaac get his taste for game? Where did Isaac get his taste for game? Well, Isaac probably got his taste for game on that tragic day, that nearly tragic day that his father almost sacrificed him. On that day that Isaac was a little boy and he helped his dad build an altar out of stone. And then unbeknownst to him, his dad lays him down, probably ties him down onto that altar and raises his knife and comes within one heartbeat of taking his own son's life because he thinks that's what God is saying to him. And in the last moment before he plunges that knife into his son's heart. He hears the voice of God say, stop. And he looks up and what does Abraham see? A wild ram hung in the brambles. How many of you, how many of you believe like I do that in the moment that Isaac's life is spared by a wild ram hung in the brambles on the day that he and his father decide not to kill him but to go over and take the ram and to lay it and to burn it before God on the altar how many of you think like I do that Isaac got a taste for wild game wild game becomes a symbol of provision wild game becomes wild game becomes in some ways a symbol of pardon a very manifest one. And it was Esau's connection to this mysterious fascination that his father had with an invisible God. 
Every time Esau would go out and kill an animal, Isaac would grab a piece of meat and a little bread and he would eat it. And in that moment, he would think about the day that his life was nearly ended, but God provided another way right out of the wilderness. Esau was looking for more. Esau was looking, in my opinion, for God. In his own way. And in his own day. And even though he could not have been able to articulate it, even though he might not have been willing to articulate it, he was looking for God. Esau was hungry. He was hungry for adventure. He was hungry for a game dinner. And he was hungry for his father's approval. And he was hungry to be known as a provider. It was his calling card. Oh, so hungry. And then there's Jacob. Second born. First loser. Quieter. Mama's boy. Settled at home. Decent in the kitchen. Not powerful. Not intimidating. No weapons. No bow. No spear. No sling. No AR-15. Nothing. But Jacob was just as dangerous. And he was dangerous in the way that everyone who isn't powerful is dangerous. Jacob was dangerous because he was passive-aggressive. How many of you know that the really dangerous ones are the quiet ones? It's never, it's never the bully who's most dangerous because you always know where you stand with the bully. Listen, the only thing the bully needs is one person to pop them in the nose. That's it. I'll tell you a funny story about bullying. My wife was bullied when she was a little girl. This girl would like to come and knock her around a little bit on the school bus. Up to the day that tiny second grade Heather takes her metal lunchbox and slugs the bully in the face. You know where you stand with bullies. That person never messed with Heather again. However, the person you do need to be worried about is the one who talks a good game. The passive aggressive. Don't we, can't we all just agree that there's, n- that there's nothing worse than manipulation? Can we all agree? Isn't that the worst? Yeah. Newman. You know, he was passive aggressive, this Jacob, just like his mother. This is always the way of the non-powerful. Jacob was a trickster. He was a heel grabber, not just at birth, but his whole life. He was a deceiver. He was also so very hungry. In fact, he and Esau were a lot alike. By different means, but so much alike. Esau was hungry and Jacob was hungry. They were both opportunistic. They were both ambitious. Esau was hungry for hunting and whatever was out there. He was hungry for his father's approval. He was hungry for some kind of a connection to this mysterious God, maybe. And Jacob was hungry for every single thing that Esau had. This, of course, sets the stage for the drama. Esau comes home from hunting unsuccessfully. He's empty-handed. Even though he's skillful, he's empty-handed. He's got all of this expertise, but he's got nothing. How many of you understand that's the way of life? You can be really good at something, and it doesn't always go as planned. And this, of course, amplifies all of his hunger. And he comes home, and Jacob is waiting. Jacob is waiting. He is at home, just like usual. And he's sitting over a pot of red lentils. And Esau asks for a meal. And Jacob says, sure. But you got to do one thing for me, brother. I need your birthright. I need your place of honor in the family. And I want your double portion of the family inheritance. And Esau relents. He almost gives... No resistance whatsoever. And so Esau gives up his honor and Esau gives up his double portion for one bowl of red beans. Couple things. Couple things. First thing I want to say about this story is this. Nobody in this story is good. This is actually my favorite part of the story. 
Ain't nobody good. Nobody's good. Esau is stupid, and Jacob is a manipulative, passive-aggressive trickster. In fact, Jacob is the guy you would most least to have, you would most least to want your daughter to marry. The reason I bring it up is because we really need to keep this in our mind. Here's why. This story is not principally about how to get favor. And this story is not principally about how to get blessing. And this story is not principally about how to partner with God. If you read it like that, you'll read it wrong. Here's why. Because if you set out to become a Jacob, you may get what you want and become a terrible person in the process. The world doesn't need more Jacobs. Nobody in this story is good. It is not how to win. This story is not about what to do as much as it is two very distinct things. And we'll talk about each of these at a little bit of length. The first thing, the first thing this story absolutely is, is this. This is a story of warning. In fact, this is the motif that Genesis is generally written in. This is mostly a story of warning. It's a warning especially to people who are blessed and who are favored, and people who have the promises of God. Does that sound like anyone you know? See, I think it sounds like us. We are blessed, we are favored, and we have the promises of God. Here's the thing. Most of us in this room, most of us in this room are pretty darn blessed. Can I just tell you something about us as Americans? On our worst day, on our very worst day, we are born... In one of the safest countries, in one of the safest times, in one of the richest moments in human history. No one who has ever lived is as safe, secure, and provided for as you are. You might be thinking, well, I'm really poor. You are abundantly, wildly, fantastically rich, cared for, and provided for. You are so blessed, it's crazy. No one who lived even 200 years ago would have ever considered that the way we live would have ever been possible for most people. Most kings who have lived in the earth do not have it as good as you and I do right now. We have air conditioning. For all of Solomon's wealth, the one thing he never had was running water and air conditioner. He never had any of that. He didn't have a plasma screen TV. He, di- he, didn't, he couldn't watch the Bengals lose in fantastic fashion. Like, he, he was... We could go there. There's a sermon in there somewhere. I know there is. See, this is, this is a story of warning, especially for people who are blessed and favored and have the promises of God. Most people in this room right now know, know Jesus, and most people in this room have promises from God. And if you're blessed and if you're favored and you have promises from God, this is a story that you need to pay real close attention to because this is putting its finger on the proclivities of a human heart who have everything they need. See, here's the thing. Jacob and Esau pr- probably grew up pretty okay. They didn't have a plasma screen TV. They didn't drive a Mercedes, but their grandfather was Abraham, and he was pretty darn rich, and their daddy was Isaac, and he was pretty darn rich. They were blessed with a kind of stability that was pretty, pretty well unheard of in the ancient Near East. Meaning, translation, they didn't miss many meals. It's my opinion that growing up, neither Jacob nor Esau ever missed a meal. In a time when people frequently missed meals, they were cared for, provided for, and blessed. Not only that, Esau in particular was really set up because he was the oldest. He had the birthright in the family, he was right with God, and he had the affection of his own father. And for all of his blessing, Esau had this one massive flaw. This one massive flaw. What is the flaw? It is that he was hungry. He was hungry. And here's the thing. Everybody in this room is hungry. Everybody's hungry. We've all got appetites. We've all got things that we are desirous of. And here's the thing about appetites. Every appetite you have has got to be fed. And Esau was a man searching. And he was empty. And in the moment of weakness, he traded his future for a bowl of beans. That's the warning here. That's the point of the story. If you're led by your hunger, it's very possible that your hunger will steal your future. 
If momentary satisfaction is the only thing that matters, then one's future is in massive jeopardy. Now let's bring all of our appetites to bear into the, mo- into the room for a moment. All of our appetites for money. And let me tell you something about this church. We are filled with people who have a love for money. And I'm not beating up on anyone in particular. I'm just beating up on all of us. We don't like to talk about it that way. We don't want to frame it that way. But one of the things we at the Vineyard love is we love money. And what we want is, like J.P. Morgan said, just a little bit more. We want just a little bit more. We want a little bit more. How much is enough? A little bit more. We love money. We've got an appetite for it. Not only that, but we've got an appetite for sex. And we're not talking about those people out there. I'm talking about us people in here. Everybody's got an appetite for sex. We all want that kind of connection. And we have an appetite for fame and notoriety. Only in the church we call it honor. I honor you. Gag me. And we have an appetite. We've got a hunger for success. What I really need to be happy is one more job promotion. What I really need to be happy is to go one more level up. What I really need to be happy is another PhD, another master's degree. What I really need to be happy is just a little more. I need a franchise. I need to build on. I need to add on. I need to, I need to multiply. I need to scale up. I need to scale this thing up. Uh, we also have a hunger for relationships, not just friendships, but like we're just we're dying for this idea of knowing and being known. And, and, and we're looking for connection. And everybody in this room right now, I know us, man. I know us because I know me. We're looking for power because we really want control. We got appetites. We got a hunger for control. And, we, and we're also looking for novelty. We've got an appetite. We've got a hunger for novelty. Many of us here in the vineyard, we can't handle being bored for any longer than five minutes. We're always looking for the new thing. Always looking for the new thing. I'm just looking for the new thing. Always looking for the new thing. And all of these human appetites, all of this hunger, all of these things are the very things that can lead you astray. And that's what Esau's hunger represents. It's all that's base and all that's animalistic. All that is instinctual. All that is within us that you didn't have to be taught. How many of you understand you don't have to be taught to love money and you don't have to be taught to want sex and you don't have to be taught to want power or to be successful or to have honor? That's the animal instinctual part of who you are and that part of you can lead you into a wilderness of abandonment. That's what Esau's hunger represents. Nobody has to teach you to be hungry for food. Nobody has to teach you to be hungry for money. Nobody has to teach you to be hungry for sex for power, for control, for fame, for notoriety, for novelty, something new. And right now, those things that we think we need the most, especially those things that we think we need the most right now, are the things that are most actually probably a snare. A few questions here. When Esau comes home empty-handed and hungry, He says, look, I'm starving to death. Got a question. Was Esau really about to die? Nope. Nope. Doubtful. He had probably, he'd probably almost never gone actually hungry. Second question. Could Esau have gotten something else to eat? Probably. Probably could have walked into the tent next door and gotten a piece of bread and a glass of water. So the real question is this. Why be so flippant when you don't have to be? Why be so flippant? Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't come out and tell us, but I have a couple thoughts. My first thought is this. That Esau was a desperate man. Here's what I mean. 
It's a particular kind of desperation. I know it, and I know it firsthand. It's the desperation that comes from being the oldest. It's the desperation that comes from being well-fed. It's the desperation that comes from being safe and secure. And it's the desperation of coming from a stable and an honored family. How many of you understand that if Esau was the firstborn, and he was his father's favorite, and he was in line for all the money and all the honor, that his entire life, what did Esau get whatever he wanted so anytime Esau had any kind of appetite anytime Esau had any kind of desire anytime Esau had any kind of hunger at two snaps it was in front of him and how many of you understand if you always get what you want that's probably the worst thing for you and so Esau comes home unable to get what he wants and he says to his brother give me a pot of that his brother says, well, one thing, hang on. I think Esau had become desperate in the way that someone who's been catered to becomes desperate and flippant. Secondly, I think, he didn't take ja- I think he didn't take Jacob seriously. Here's what I mean. I think when Jacob makes the offer, I think in, in Esau's mind is this. Well, I can agree to whatever he wants I can agree to whatever the terms are because at the end of the day, I can kick his butt. I'm not afraid of him. Like on the day that, on the day that Jacob tries to come and collect birthrights from me, I'll just grab him by the ear and mash him into the ground. What's Jacob going to do? Beat me with a wooden spoon? What's Jacob going to do? Huh? What's that guy going to do? I'll just, I'll punch him in the nose. I think he didn't take his brother seriously. But for whatever reason, whatever the reasons that Esau had for being flippant, the results were the same and the results are loss. That's what unmitigated appetites always bring you to. It always bring you, brings you to loss. Flippancy always leads to loss. And this is why we need to cultivate the ability to say no. The ability to say no. No to sex with the person on the wrong terms. And what are the right terms? Husband and wife in marriage. That's it, you know? And it's wild that I have to even say that these days, but I do. (laughs) So here we are. No to profits made in that way. Let me just say something to the vineyard. Lots of us are in business. If it's not a good business deal for everybody, it's not a good business deal for anybody. We have to internalize that. Otherwise, we'll just become Esau's, where the ends justify the means. As long as my appetite for more money, more sex, more fame, more honor is met right now, then it must be okay. No, no, that's actually not it at all. Not it at all. Esau is a type. And in the business world, we have to, we have to digest this and make it a part of our being. If it's not a good deal for everybody, it's not a good deal for anybody. If we know that we've got somebody on the line who's willing to make a bad deal, then Jesus requires that we renegotiate the terms in their favor. Otherwise, we'll just become Esau. We'll trade a momentary profit for a future of pain. No to position traded for dishonor. In the kingdom of heaven, the ends never justify the means. No matter how noble the ends seem to be. Let me just frame it this way. The ends don't justify the means, even if we're talking about someone else's eternal salvation. You know, you sometimes hear this kind of thought in the church. Well, you know, it's worth it if even one person gets saved. It's worth it. Like we can manipulate people for six months. We can manipulate hundreds of people and hang them over hell for six months. But if one person gets saved, then it's worth it. Actually, no. The kingdom of heaven is a way. I love it. My brother-in-law says this. It's so darn true. The way the kingdom comes is the kingdom that comes. And if you have a manipulating kingdom, then what you have is a manipulating kingdom. And Jesus is not manipulative. He never makes anyone do anything. He always invites. The kingdom of heaven is invitation. Hey, Peter. Hey, James. Hey, John. Why don't you come with me? If you can't say no, it's not God's kingdom. And this is why we have to learn how to say no. This is why we have to learn how to say no. Because your calling and your favor and your promise from God has to be partnered with. And often that comes with delayed gratification, which means saying no. 
That's number one. Number one, this is a story that is more complex than we think. Number two, what is this story about? This is a story that's ultimately about God's goodness. I love this part. It's back to that thing we chatted about a few minutes ago. Ain't nobody in this story good? Well, if ain't nobody in this story good, one of the things we do see that's amazing is that God is foundationally and fundamentally amazing. Because he's so kind to all the wretched people in the story. No one is good. Jacob is a passive-aggressive trickster, and Esau is an overconfident, hungry doof. But each, but each ends up with a measure of blessing, and it's because God is kind. God is so kind. And by the way, both experience loss. And so we're going to talk about that just for a second. First, we'll talk about blessing. Number one, Jacob gets a wife. Jacob gets a wife. Not only that, but he gets, he gets a great wife. Jacob actually gets two wives. And he gets the one of his heart. And Jacob gets herds. If you read the Genesis story out a little bit further, you find that Jacob gets herds. He gets wives. He gets herds. He gets children. He gets uh, silver. He has tons and tons of silver. He's got money. And he comes home years later and he sends all these gifts. You can read about it. He sends all these gifts ahead of him because he knows that Esau wants to kill him. And he sends gifts. Fabulous and lavish gifts out ahead of him to save his own neck. He also gets the promises of Abraham and he gets God encounters and he gets a new name and his name is Israel. And, and, and for all of Esau's foolishness, he also gets blessed. Esau lives in a land called Seir. And he, and when Jacob sends all of this, all of these gifts out to him, when he's coming back home, all these years later, Esau goes out to meet him. And the Bible says that Esau meets him with 400 men, 400 armed men, which is to say that Esau has become a commander of an army. And this is uh, the Bible's way of saying that Esau has become basically the king of a region. And he has become the foundational patriarch of an an area called Edom. Uh, If you read the Bible, it talks about Edom or the Edomites. That's Esau. And Esau not only has 400 men under his command, but when Jacob gives him all these gifts, finally Esau meets Jacob and he embraces him and says, I don't want your stuff. Because I don't need your stuff. He's, an, he's foolish. And he still is so blessed. God is so kind. Nobody in this story is good. And God continues to be kind and generous to the very people who are most offensive to the way of life that is God's kingdom. But they both experience loss. And this is the warning. They both experience loss. Here's what Jacob loses. And we don't typically think of Jacob being a loser, but he absolutely does lose. Jacob lost his family for years. Jacob lost his family for years. His choices to be a trickster and his choices to be passive-aggressive and manipulative, it caused him to lose relationship with his family for years. He lived away from his family, and the trickster ended up in servitude to, a, to an uncle who was even trickier than him. Not only that, but part of the text that we receive when we take Genesis in is that Jacob becomes an anxiety-ridden, fear-filled man. Every decision that Jacob makes is always riddled with anxiety. Jacob starts out confident, and by halfway through the story, one of, one of the things you realize about Jacob is, man, he's just always nervous about his own skin, and Jacob is that anxious person. If Jacob were alive today, he'd be taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicine left and right. He'd be just crunching them up. And Esau loses. And this is the sad part. Esau loses the blessing of being a nation of promise. Say it with me now. Abraham, Isaac, and... It, it could have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And no one says that, right? No, see, when, when Esau was a man who was hungry and couldn't say no to now for later, he lost the blessing of being a nation of promise. And this is the saddest part. Esau was not just careless with his family position or money. He was spiteful to his place in the redemptive history of Israel. And by the way, this is really sad because he knew the stories. He knew the stories. He knew his grandfather. He certainly knew his father. He knew the promises. And he knew how God had protected 
from their little clan out in the desert for years and had promoted them and blessed them. He knew the story of Abraham. He knew that his grandfather had met with God and God had said to him, Hey, Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? Nope. I'm going to make you a father of great nations. Esau knew the story. He knew about how Abraham took a handful of men and rescued Lot against incredible odds. How many of you understand that goat herders are not great warriors? But they went anyway. Why? Because God is with them. God was with them. He knew the stories. And he knew how God had protected them and promoted them. And even though he knew all of that, he never internalized it. And he was, he was, either, he was either the kind of person who took it for granted or he was so distracted with his own appetites that he let all of it go in one quick moment. We should know Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, but that is not the story. He forfeited it. Esau had an appetite for everything but God. Birthright for Stu. Late for his father's blessing. Married Hittite women who worshipped other gods. Esau had an appetite for everybody and for everything except for God. He was alive, but he was dead. He was alive to life, but he was dead and he was ignorant of eternal life. He was so hungry especially for immediate pleasures of food and drink. But he was dead to the greater pleasures of knowing God and walking in his promise. And that bowl of stew, that bowl of stew, though it was satisfying in the moment, and though it filled and made warm, it was ultimately judgment. It was a warm bowl of judgment. Imagine this for me. Just a moment. Imagine this. Imagine your Esau. Imagine you're a hunter. Imagine you're a skilled hunter. And imagine that you're good with a bow and you're good with a sling and you're strong and able. And imagine that you come home empty-handed and you're begging your little brother. And the only thing the brother has cooking is lentils. Not a lamb, not a goat, not even a rabbit. Just lentils. Imagine the carnivorous hunter trading his future not for meat, but for lentils. Not even the immediate satisfaction of meat. What do you get? What do you get if you can't say no for later? What do you get? You get a life without God. You get a bowl full of beans. You get a life that's captive to the appetites of the moment. A life that's unconscious of God's promise. A life that's unaware and uncaring about tomorrow or our place in it. That's the thing about appetite, by the way. That's the thing about appetite. It always, it always screws everything up. And I want to say a couple things about appetite real quick here. That's the thing about appetite. Here's what you need to know about appetite, church. You cannot quench appetite. You cannot shut up hunger. You cannot domesticate it. You can't put it on a leash and walk it around the neighborhood. There's always a wild edge to hunger, and this goes for everyone. You cannot get inner healed of appetite. You cannot get Bible knowledge to deal with your hungers. You can get a PhD in theology. You can memorize the whole Bible. You can pray 24-7. You can move to IHOP. You can be Mike Bickle's assistant, and at the end of the day, your hungers and your appetites will not be managed. You cannot... You cannot domesticate hunger. You can only replace them. You can direct them. And this is the good news. Appetite has to be directed and satisfied with the good or it will always be alive with death and destruction. Usually the one of immediacy and right now. These are the ones that are most alive to us. The appetite of immediacy and right now. And here's the thing I've learned about appetite. All of our appetites are actually longings for God. Every appetite you have and every appetite I have is actually a longing for Him. But here's the mysterious part. They never feel like it in the moment. Your appetites never feel like a longing for God in the moment. It always feels like, well, I need sex. Or I need money. Or I need favor. I need people to like me. But really, what all of those feelings are... They're longings for God. And they're always cloaked in something else. Every single time. They're always cloaked 
in something else. And so there are actually invitations to go to God. And this is what Jesus said in John chapter 4. He said, anyone who drinks this water is going to get thirsty again. He tells the woman at the well. But everybody who drinks the water I'll give will never be thirsty again. Never again. And it becomes actually a fresh bubbling spring within them and it gives them eternal life. And then two chapters later in John chapter 6 verse 35, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. All of our longings, they're ultimately, it's just us looking for God. It's an invitation to be satisfied. And by the way, being satisfied in God is usually not easy. It's actually usually not easy. I know there are dudes out there preaching right now that so much of the Christian life is easy and grace is easy and blah, 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 blah. It's garbage. Being satisfied with God is actually not easy. It is slow and oftentimes really difficult. Mostly because it's so non-native. Mostly because our animalistic instinctual selves are so blind to who God is. But this is what Paul said. Paul said that he knew how to abase and he knew how to abound. Read for that. He knew about contentment. And if there's anything that modern culture hates, it's contentment. Because if you're content, it can't sell you anything. Think about that for a minute. Four questions and we'll be finished. You might want to write these down on your little iPhone. These require reflection. And I'm not going to lie. Some of these require the kind of reflection that is difficult. Question number one. What are my Esau tendencies? What are my Esau tendencies? Question number two. Where are my appetites leading me? Think about your appetite. Put it on a timeline. Consider nurturing that appetite for 30 years. And tell me where that appetite gets you. If your appetite is mostly... If your appetites are mostly alive to things like... Money, power, fame, notoriety, and sex. Put those on the timeline and tell me where they get you. Number three, am I thinking long-term or short-term? This is a very important question as well. I'm sure there are some exceptions to what I'm about to tell you, but I don't know of any. Almost 100% of the time, short-term thinking is driven by the devil. Our desire for things to be instant and now and, and already is almost always, always, always the devil driving. God is almost always the one who's thinking long term. And especially if you begin to think not only about me, but if you begin to think about my children and my children's children, you have somehow stepped into the father heart of God. God is such a long distance thinker. God likes for acorns to take 100 years to become an oak tree. Amen. He, there's something about... There's something about the, the slow thing. Like even a baby takes nine months to gestate in its mother's belly. You, you don't just have babies. They, 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 they happen over the course of months. And then once you get it, then the trouble really starts. You know, it's like, what am I going to do with this darn thing? It's keeping me up all night. See, here's the thing. Here at the Vineyard, we, we embrace the Holy Spirit. We want all of the Holy Spirit. We want, we want, I don't want some of it. I want everything. And not only that, but I've seen every miracle in the Bible except for dead people get up. I've seen them all. Absolute. I, I'm a firm believer. However, however, the charismatic side of who we are can absolutely blind us to the ways in which God normally works, which is progress, slow, uh, unnoticed, subterranean, hidden, and in the dirt. And if we're thinking short-term, if we're thinking instantaneous, you can become mostly blind. You'll become an Esau. I need my bread right now. A better question for Esau is, why'd you get in the shape where you're so hungry? 
Why didn't you plan better? Sometimes we're asking God to get us out of jams, but we haven't learned the lesson from the jam yet. Here's the deal. I've seen God get people out of jams, and they didn't learn anything from it. And you know why he does it? Because he's kind. He's just flat out kind. I've, I've seen people make ridiculous decisions over and over, and God just gets them out. But oftentimes, God doesn't get us out because we haven't learned the lesson. You know? It's like, come on. Like, what am I going to do? Pull you out, and then you just go right back? Come on. All pain is telling a story. Fourth question. Have I bent my life to the promises of God? You have promises from God? Have you written them down? You should. If you have promises from God, when you write them down, now you begin to do the math like this. How do I need to forge my life so that I can agree with that promise and make steps toward it? That will be a slow and it will be an arduous process. And that's okay. I love what Dallas Willard used to say. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Have I bent my life to the promises of God? Think about that. Amen. Hey, if you're on the ministry team this morning, come on up. And everyone else, um, why don't you stand up? I want to pray for you and we'll just transition this meeting. Yeah, I have a sneaky feeling there may be some people who just need to respond to the message this morning. And I'm, I, what I want to do is, I just want to ask you to respond even before we pray. If you just need to respond to this message this morning, uh, why don't you just come up? I know it's a little awkward, but we're just going to do that. We'll just give a moment here. If you just need some prayer to be able to get control over your yes and no and to think long term, why don't you come on up? Right, come right on up. Anybody else? I feel like I need to do this because sometimes, sometimes when I pray and we end the meeting, we just we 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 just we just kind of slip out the back, even though we knew we needed to, we needed to pray. Anybody else? Just, we got time. Garcia's is open to like eight. It's all good. All right. How about this? Why don't we all just put our hands out like this? We'll go full vineyard here for a second. God, we ask for grace. God, we ask for grace to have power over our yes and no. Father, we want to be, man, Lord, we just, gosh, we want to be thinking long-term with you. God, we want to cooperate with promise. We don't want to sell our birthright for a bowl of beans. And God, we just ask right now that you would give us grace to consider our life in a new way and not become slaves to the right now and not become slaves to the immediate and end up becoming an Esau. God, we ask that you do this deep work in us. In the name of Jesus, who is wonderful. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything else, you can come up. These people will pray for you. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. Mass is ended. Go in peace. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.